welcome 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 back to the honestly speaking podcast you know the drill subscribe write a review share with a friend help us grow today in the booth we got john pavlovitz he's a writer pastor and activist a personal friend of g's today he joins us to talk about his twitter activism he's verified he's very active on there we talk about the merits of that platform for this movement we also touch on the role of religion in modern progressivism and lastly the big question everybody wants to know is love the answer to american partisanship kick your feet up listen up Welcome back, beautiful people. I am so honored to have my friend on today, John Pavlovitz, author, truth sayer, public speaker, and I think as of recent, a YouTuber. Do I have that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm stepping into that uh, <laughs> slowly. Yes. Yeah, I, I actually stumbled upon a YouTube video today or this morning, and I looked at your channel. And I was like, oh, his channel, you got it together. It's looking sleek, looking oh, sleek. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm... <laughs> I am I'm so glad to be with you. It's an honor, really. Yeah, so let's just hop into it. You got a new book coming out. What's this book? I do, I do. It's called If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. And um, it's been a long time coming. Wrote it, started writing in the in March of last year. So when everything kind of started turning upside down and realized the book I had been writing, I couldn't write any longer. And uh Luckily, had a, a great uh, publisher who said, well, what book could you write right now? Because so much was happening and I didn't feel like I could ignore all of that while sticking to some agenda that I had. So that's the fruit of this book. John, you know, we were excited to have you on for so many different reasons. Obviously, G, just saying your praises from the tour that you all are on. But, um, you know, obviously, uh, politics and culture and faith are such a just powerful intersection and when we were looking you up, you know, we saw that you're part of the Unitarian Universalism. And Ed and I were trying to do our research and try and come to, you know, an understanding of it. But I think it'd be better for us to not explain it and hear a little bit from in your words what that actually entails. Well, for me, I don't consider myself necessarily a Unitarian Universalist. Um, there's a community here in Raleigh that I decided to go and they invited me to speak. And it turned out to be this really sweet community of of really like-hearted people. And so I found sort of a second home there, but I still, you know, I consider myself, I'm a, I'm a theological mutt. And so I've really been trying to just be open to, to truth wherever I find it, to goodness wherever it shows up and to not worry about sort of who gets the credit for it. I mean, Unitarian Universalism to me is a really wide open, expansive place and that it really, it relies on the individual journey and then the really collective expression of those values and that's what really appeals to me trying to figure out how to live this stuff out with people who have disparate views but there are enough commonalities that we can say this is where we begin and that's really where i write from that sort of shared humanity place so as a theological mutt is your mission to draw the parallels between all of these different faiths in the premise being that the our different faiths are what are what is dividing us is that kind of your sort of operating principle as a theological mutt? Yeah, you know, I still, I mean, to me, the the teachings in life of Jesus are still the thing that that root me. They were my original doorway into spirituality. And there's a there's a huge muscle memory there. 
And so I'm, I'm sort of in a place where I'm often fighting with and for that faith tradition. Um, I see the beauty in it. I've experienced it, but I know the toxicity of it. And so as I travel, what I've been fortunate to find is that the people who come to the writing, they're a really um, you know, disparate group of people, but they're, they really believe in respecting the other. And so I think I'm trying to be a learner of stories. I, I kind of consider myself uh, kind of a war correspondent. You know, I travel usually or now virtually and just listen to people and they tell me their stories. And then I try to filter those stories and, and that's what I write about. And so I'm trying to find the commonalities in what it means to be a spiritual person, but also to recognize that people who have no religious worldview share some of those, uh, that gravitational pull toward, toward goodness. And so I'm just trying to show up and, and uh, perpetuate that really. John, I have a quick question. So uh, when I met you on the tour, uh, I would say like our cohort was made up a lot of former conservative Republicans who, through the process of Trump coming into office, uh, began to become very critical of conservative Republicans. Are you in that camp? I'm not sure if you, like, were you, were you in that camp before and then something changed and now you're more on the progressive side or have you always been on this side? Well, I entered the ministry really, it was a surprise to me. I didn't intend to be a pastor. In fact, when I connected to a local church after my, you know, I was, I grew up in the Catholic church and drifted from my faith and was sort of what, what I would call a hopeful agnostic at the time. And this was in my early twenties and connected to a local United Methodist church. And it just happened to be that we, we found a group of people that were really living out the faith that I had grown up hearing about. And began working in that church and then sort of volunteering with students and then getting asked to be part-time paid and then going to seminary. And it sort of, I got pulled into this ministry and I didn't really have, uh, I wasn't associated with a voting block or a denomination. And what happened was as I started to grow in ministry and the churches began to be larger and I got sort of a greater equity of trust, I realized that I was compromising some of the things that I believed that was softening my words. And so I was never in a super conservative environment, but I was always in a fairly orthodox one and feeling as though if I could speak my full truth, I would say it this way, but I noticed that I'm saying it this way. And so for me, the arrival of Trump, it just was an evolution that I had had of saying, I need to speak more explicitly into matters of race and sexuality, or I'm being irresponsible as a minister. And so all you know everything that happened since 2016 it just kind of made that more urgent i guess john you know I, i'm also a recovering catholic i would say i'm probably still in the agnostic camp but something that i found that is always of interest to me is you know some of the most progressive folks that i've come across around the country have been a faith and i've also had noticed that you know and i don't have all the information but i've had some friends that have been attending seminary school but not necessarily to become clergy, but there's a lot of abolition talk within seminary school. So where did these two sides come together? Because part of my push away from religion was I always just felt this just very conservative and not necessarily as Republican, but just conservative values all across that pushed me away. But then there's seemingly this other side of abolition. So how does that come to be? Well, for me, there's there's always been a tension in the more I grew in this faith system, this religious tradition, the more I began to see that 
all the things that my heart was sort of push, pushing away or um, resisting inequality and injustice, they were being perpetuated by that same system. And so for me, there was this understanding that I'm participating in this really damaging thing, but I'm looking at the heart of what I think that thing is and trying to preserve that and, and to, um, to live into that. And so that's a, that's a really, and I'm not sure if that's exactly addressing your question. I think for me, there is always this, this tension between what I think the tradition was supposed to be and what I realize that it is and all that comes with it. And so being a, a white cisgender heterosexual pastor, um, realizing that I have been the beneficiary of this system and yet wanting to alter that system. So the work I do is just kind of always in that tension. How do you, with religion, there's the tension, I mean, just like disentangling religion from the good and the evil of America. It's been on both sides, as far alluded to, I guess more of the contemporary abolitionist movement being of, of sort of uh, buttress of a certain faith. Religion has just kind of been used for progress and also regression in this country. So it, it's, it's almost, you know, it, disentangling that from it. Can you then use religion to say, well, this is actually what religious is premised to be. You know, here are the here are the tenets of Christianity you know, goodness and loving thy neighbor. Um, can you hold the country to those tenets when religion has more so been used as kind of more of an ideological pretext for, you know, whether it be good or evil? Yeah, I think, you know, um, the, the tour that Genesis talks about, I can remember being on the early stages of that. And one of the, the pastors there was, uh, you know, a white guy like me about my age and saying, you know, hey, I'm telling the story about, 25 years ago being on this book tour with a couple other white pastors and we were talking about how we need to redeem christianity and i kept thinking wow we're we're still there like nothing has changed and why has nothing changed and i i feel the weight of that so i'm i'm always cognizant of the fact that even the the, the word christian and even the idea of the church has been so damaging to so many that i'm often not sure if it can be redeemed or repackaged or reclaimed and so i'm really leaning into a personal expression of whatever i believe the teachings of jesus are and then looking for people you know when i show up in a city i'm really fortunate that there are uh, muslims and there are atheists and there are agnostics and there are jews and christians and we and people of no faith and then we gather and say well what why are we here what drew us here what is that common thing and so I'm, I'm big on, I don't know, I don't care who gets the credit. I don't need to reclaim Christianity as a tradition, but I do know that faith should yield a more compassionate life, not less. It should yield a greater access to opportunity, not less. And so what we're seeing is it's really easy to see a Christianity that's doing it wrong. I think that has the bandwidth, that has the, you know, the capital. And I think what um, it's, we're really not good at doing is saying, here's an alternative. And you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to participate, but that alternative is there. So I'm always sort of trying to remind people of that. Speaking of reminding people of that and reminding people of things, um, can we talk about the Twitter vitriol? You have a pretty large presence on Twitter and yeah, um, yeah. your account's pretty active, I would say. Mm -hmm. So... When did that start? And I mean, I have a lot of questions around that. And I think my co-hosts do as well. But can you speak a little bit about your Twitter? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been just uh, part of the, you know, the aggregating of, of people to the words that you write and the things that you say. And I think a lot of times what I what I've often realized is the the power that organized Christianity has had and the sort of bullying of that that system. And so I've been trying to be a presence that not only of love, but one that opposes that hatred and confronts it pretty directly. Um, and so, you know, that's the part, you know, the work that I'm doing there is trying to share different perspectives, but also to let people know that there actually is a pushback against the things that they're hearing and seeing and experiencing. A woman said to me, you know, hey, um, John, you're fighting for this thing. I hear you saying that, you know, the Christian Christianity is not this. But she said, um, as a, a queer woman of color, this has been my experience of Christianity my whole life. And she said, you're the outlier. You're the heretic. That's why I love you. And so it's really interesting to be in that space and realize that sometimes I'm trying to put my energy into an expression of love, but sometimes I'm realizing that there is... Um, what I would call a ferocity for humanity that I want to make sure is present. Sure. And as someone who's kind of been following along with your words since 2018, when I met you, there have been times where I see your Twitter feed and I worry about you mm. because they say when certain people, they have a specific kind of soul that's able to absorb and project and interact with collective consciousness, and be and some are like yourself are able to take collective fear and alchemize it into love but the back side of that is many of those souls are at risk of being contaminated by the same fear yeah. that they are trying to oppose it really takes a very unique soul to at no point be contaminated if that if that makes any sense yeah for sure and i think part of the Part of the, what I do every day, I learned really early on, um, the people in my church, I was in a mega church, and they loved my boldness. They applauded that boldness, and they celebrated it, until that boldness kind of um, confronted their theology or their politics. And then suddenly that boldness was a liability for me. And so I learned that no matter what I said, if it was anything of consequence, or specificity, it was going to run into opposition. And then that opposition is going to create a counter punch. And so for me, it's about getting up every day and saying, what is my intention here? I think, what what are my motives? And so you, you can get in the throes of this and get it wrong or realize after a couple of days or a season that, hey, I really was out of balance. But so there's a there's a fine line between having someone across from you and wanting to show them something that you've seen that they haven't seen and wanting to make them feel like an idiot or to, you know, wanting to educate someone <laughs> and to put them on blast. And it's hard because you often don't know in the moment, what am I trying to do? So there are a lot of self-care and a lot of strategies I have, but that that's a huge thing because... I had a, a woman who was in ministry with me and, and she was still working for the church after I had left. And she said, you're coming across as really angry. And I tried to explain to her that, yes, I, I could see that and I could even see it in myself. But I said, when you're out of that place where you're not shielded or buffered from some of these stories and some of the hatred, well, you can easily begin to accumulate that. And so, um, yeah, it's a it's a daily battle. It sure is. Uh, I, I appreciate you speaking to that with vulnerability because 
I'm a little younger than you, but we fight for the same. Yeah. We fight for revolutionary love. We fight for radical love. So I also struggle with this. So I wanted to ask that question personally also, you know, to get that feedback because it is, it really takes a lot of fortifying every day to stay in that intention and the self-awareness to know when you're deviating from that intention. Yeah. And the other part about it too, Jen, is that I... I have been always cognizant of the fact that um, I'm trying to speak into something that is there's a real place of brokenness and fear is perpetuating that. So on some days I can look at these real conservative Christians and I know what's going on in them. I, I almost have I have an empathy for the fact that they have a toxic theology that they've inherited. They have a story about God and their own worth that has really polluted them. And I also know that they're afraid of getting God angry. And I so part of me, as I sympathize, there are days when I realize they are so entrenched in that that they are they're willfully damaging other people. So it, yeah, it's a constant. Um, you're constantly checking that. Can we talk about just love and hate right now? I, gee, you teed it up so beautifully. Is love the answer, or is lack of love our real problem as a country? Is that I think that that is the subtext of. A lot of things we talk about, not just in religious terms, but even art and, you know, community and belonging, that hate seems to be the real issue. And that if we could just counteract that with love, all of the problems of America would be solved. Yeah, I, I think that the the lack of the lack of a desire to learn another person's story is really has really hurt us there that we've lost the curiosity for other people's experience of the world. And so as much as I'm trying to figure out how do I understand this group of people or this voting block, I often realize that that same desire is not present. And that's what I grieve, um, that it is, a, it is not only the fact that I don't know your experience, but there's a large number of people who say, I don't even care to learn that experience because I want a shorthand, uh, I want my pastor or my politician to tell me what is what is real? What is, how should I feel about this? Um, give me a verse, and I'll just go on with my worldview as it is. And I think most of us don't want to be changed or surprised or get information that's counter to the story that we've grown up in. And that's the di most difficult thing to get through, I think. Interesting. So it's upbringing and sort of maybe even our own thoughts of our identity and, and our relationship to our social connections a little bit. I, I think that you know, you touched on that a little bit. Is that kind of, if, if, if you were to go a little bit further, would you, would you say that that dovetails on what you just said? It does. And I think what you, what you, tr what I've tried to realize is that I see humanity as interdependent. And then there's a, you know, I call it a vision divide. It's not a political divide. It's not a theological divide. It's how we see ourselves and one another, how we view community and all those things are inextricably tethered together. And so I think it's if we can understand that we are interdependent, that we do uh, have, uh, uh, we do belong to one another on an elemental level, uh, we would approach life differently. But our political systems and our theology is you've often set up the other way. We need the the enemy. We need the danger. We need the threat in order to exist. Is this a problem of both sides when you frame it as love and hate and understanding and just? kind of not othering the other side, learning a little bit more about a community outside of yours. That could be drawn, you, you could draw a symmetry between both sides, the right and the left, Democrats and Republicans. 
Is that something that you try to do? Sort of show like, oh, well, we're both at fault here a little bit. Yeah, well, even the idea of, of both, right? It sets up this binary system. And I, you know, I was at an event before the lockdown and a woman got up to during the Q&A and she had been activist for, you know, decades. And she, she said, you know, the problem is, John, is that they've commandeered faith and we have right on our side and we have to stop being apologetic and be loud and let them know that there is right and there is wrong. And everyone is applauding. And, um, and I stopped her and I said, yeah, I believe in the words that you're saying. But I know that across town right now, there's a bizarro gathering uh, of people who believe opposite us theologically and politically and have different buttons on their coats and different bumper stickers on their cars and a very different pastor speaking to them. And they're saying, someone's saying the exact same words and they're applauding. And so we can't get to the point where we have this, uh, this arrogance that says, we have cracked the code on this and we're more enlightened than you. Um, so as much as I can see you know, cracks or flaws in the person's opinion, I know that once I'm in that space, I'm beginning to approach uh, hubris that is going to be dangerous for me. And so, yeah, that's why, I, you know, I've often said it's not a, it's a compassion cruelty divide. It's if I can get people to have empathy for another, well, their politics and their theology are going to be secondary. If I can get them to see the humanity in front of them, those labels will be in the background as they should be. That's interesting. Like, so... Empathy and cruelty, a, a sort of a, a division of of empathy between, you know, different, whether it be regional or kind of political divides, mm -hmm. of which like religion and, and partisanship is is sort of secondary to that. What do you think? Sorry, I don't know if I'm I'm mischaracterizing what sort of what you just said, but if religion and partisanship is secondary to something that is more fundamental in terms of an empathetic and empathy division like where does that come from if religion is layered on top of that what is the the cause of the division well the cause of the division is that i think as you become part of a community i learned this in the church you know i, I was in placed in a local church where i'd never been and from moved from another state and that community surrounded me and they loved me almost immediately just simply because of who i was presented as and then I loved that community. I wanted to serve that community. And it was a really decent and noble impulse. But then it, it quickly can become polluted and political. And you become beholden to those people because you want to stay in community because of how powerful it is. And then you end up compromising and you're a partially edited version of yourself. And so are the people that you're with. I think that pull toward community is so strong that we will do anything to remain in it. And so I think part of the divide comes from just the place where we grow comfortable and the tribalism that develops around that. And I, you know, I had a pastor one time said to me about young people, but it applies across the board. She said, if you want people to feel significant, you need to give them something significant to be part of. And as they do that, they'll find their worth and they'll find the worth of other people and they'll get better stories. And I think that's, that's what we have right now. We have this sort of separateness and, um, the challenge is what do we do, right? The challenge is how do we pull people back to something that is redemptive? Um, you know, I, I kind of call it the community of the convinced. So I know people who read the writing say, uh, I may be of this theological background, but I believe that diversity makes us better. I do believe that more access to opportunity is the greater path. And if we believe that, then what can we do to collectively express it, which is the, the work that I'm trying to be about now. So it's, it, sorry, one last follow up on that. So it's geographical, you know, it's sort of like happenstance of where we grew up, how we live and we're separate from each other. 
And if we could just sort of bridge a maybe a geographical divide, you know, that could that could kind of get us on the path of getting there. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Exactly. Because I think there is a theology that even, you know, we see it in this America first idea. It's the idea that somehow people who are in closer proximity to me are of greater worth. And the further I get away from that, the less I care about them or the less human they become to me. And so you see that with anti-immigrant, you know, rhetoric and that sort of battle posture toward, you know, globalism. And so it's, I think that's the, the key is that expanding your, uh, your information or getting more stories or getting a varied experience of the world. I mean, that changed tremendously for me when I got out of sort of a, you know, cushy central New York upbringing and just was exposed even to a, a different state. And it, it made me realize life is not just what i've experienced and actually it's there's a beauty to the things i haven't experienced yet um so yeah proximity is is everything john when it, as far as kind of like the typical you know contentious issues you know whether it's abortion gay rights you know go down the list you know i feel like even with some of the more I mean, I'm sure there's like the very progressive wing of theologians that are on board some of these things, but they're still kind of, most people are still like the middle of the road, like they're almost there, but not fully there. And so where do you find is the line with within most pastors with some of these issues? And what do you think is the main battleground? Well, sadly, I mean, it's, it's church employment and it sounds ridiculous, but I, I, you know, I was meeting with a pastor in a really large church in Philadelphia and he, a fairly progressive but still mainline. And he said, I was getting ready to speak at his church on a Sunday morning. And I said, yeah, I want to make sure you know what I'm going to say, because I don't want you to feel like I'm going to drop a bomb here in your congregation. And I just want to make sure you're comfortable with a couple of these things. And he said, no, please share these because I, I want to, but I can't. And I said, well, you could, you just might end up out here with me as an unemployed pastor. And I think that that system and the the, the fear, at least, that if I speak fully, uh, authentically, I'm going to be I'm going to be removed, or I'm going to be marginalized, and in my community, and it's going to be a job liability. Those are really tangible fears, and I understand them. And for me, when I was actually fired from a church, it was almost as if the next day I was a much more um, honest version of myself, and I could speak freely. And I think that's what I I wish for ministers, because I think there's a lack of courage across the board from moderate and progressive pastors. Even right now, when so much has been happening, the thing that I am most angered by is not conservative Christians, it's moderate and progressive Christians, mainly white, who are still somehow just watching this, and they may be silently objecting, but they're not being counted in their objections. And Genesis, you know, you talk about that, that social media vitriol, and some of it comes from that to say, you know, you're still not paying attention. What is the? What do you value as a Christian? Where is your 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 ferocity for humanity? How you just described uh, ministers, you could have just <laughs> replaced the word and said uh, politicians. Do you feel uh, like some of these mainline pastors are basically just politicians? The political nature of the job is something I didn't realize because I did enter ministry as sort of a surprise, and I I remember one the first time I got paid to be a pastor. The first time I got a paycheck, it was a very surreal and uncomfortable experience because I realized that now my 
my spirituality was a commodity and it was something that I had to figure out how to leverage correctly. And I would be writing a message for a Sunday and I knew who was going to get angry and I knew where they sat and I, and I knew in some cases the, the power they had in the church and that gets in your head. And so the political nature of ministry is something that I'm really still not sure how we address, how we can free ministers up to, to be exactly who they are. And I, I think there's a conspiracy of pretending, you know, I've called it, where the minister is saying, okay, if I share this, I'm going to be, this is going to be a liability. And so they perpetuate this sort of, this softened Christianity. And the people in the chairs or the pews are saying, I, I really feel this, but the pastor is saying that, so I can't say it. And so once I had an equity of trust and I could speak a little bit more explicitly, that changed our community tremendously. And I, I was not prepared for how political ministry is. That's really interesting. The 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 intersection between politics and religion, the ministry more specifically. Do you agree with the idea that political movements, namely the right, the 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 moral majority that bloomed in the nineteen seventies, is a political movement under the guise of a religious movement of the Christianity? Is it your experience that? political movements sort of wield Christianity as, as sort of this this hammer to sort of further political movements, using religion as a tool to further more uh, political movements to gain power and authority. Is that your experience? Do you see that at all? I have. And that the reason I think is because fear is still one of the greatest motivators of people. And, if, and there's no greater fear you can leverage than the fear of the God who makes everything and can send you to punishment for eternity. And that same pastor that I talked about in Philadelphia, he said, John, I love my community, but I really miss hell. And he said, when I had hell, I could get people to come to church and participate and give and vote. And I could do all those things. And when I gave up that and I no longer had that, it was difficult to ratchet up the energy and the urgency of my people. And I, I thought, well, how terrible is that, that we can't as moderate progressive people of faith find something to be as as fervent as the religious right is and it was you know i think what trump did was he gave that thing which was sort of a dying dinosaur he gave it um more power than it had had in a long time and it knows that it's this is the last gasp and that's why you see what you saw over the past four years I, I used to speak at, at, at the Billy Graham Association. I used to I used to speak at their at their organization once a week because they were based in Charlotte. So I would lead the devotions. They had pastors speaking. So I'm speaking to all these people, and most of them are receiving the message and they're loving it. And it was only as you started, I started to see a change even there. And I remember um, my wife at the time. She worked there, and she said. You know, Fox News showed up today, and and Greta Van Susteren, and then you know you're seeing these different. Sarah Palin was there, and you started to say, well, what is happening to this thing that was still professing to be based around the teachings of Jesus? Now slowly shift to something that is about this this political system. Was that the first time you saw that shift? You know, it's a it was a matter of. It's like a, a, a slow matter of degrees. You start to see, you question this or you notice that. But for me, it, you know, a, what a, what the election of Obama did was it, it gave people who were there couching everything under spirituality, gave them all the, um, they could use all the, all the whistles and they could call out all those, 
those fear responses and see what's happening, see what's happening to your America and to your security. And um, I think that began that partnership with the political in a, in a much more um, explicit way. And I think you had Fox News, which could say, all right, now we have a real strong mechanism for delivering this message. John, during the tour, a lot of things were brought to my attention for the first time. I had a lot of naivety around power and power structures within religion and politics. I just did not have the experience to understand that until I was on a national tour with Christians, a political tour, and it pulled the rug out from under me to the point where after the tour, I didn't want anything to do with anything anything political. I was at a point where I was telling people, don't even call me an activist anymore. Like I, it rearranged me in a way that I had to recalibrate everything. Do you ever have those moments where you want to just step back, take money out of it, take anything in terms of how you're supporting your family, take all of that out of it? Do you ever just want it to stop? Oh, yeah, all the time. I think there is a collateral damage to actually caring about the world, like you alluded to earlier. And I think, you know, you, you all are, are doing this work. And so you understand that what it is to get up every day and to actually be others um, oriented. And I think there are a lot of times when you, you'll open up Twitter and you'll say, like, I'll say, I don't even, this is just an artificial um conflict that's here and it's and so you don't even want to participate in that anymore and so a lot of days i feel that way i balance that out with the with the fact that you know the silence of in my case the silence of white christians has exacerbated what we've seen and all this doesn't happen what we're seeing right now in america the, the anti-immigrant rhetoric and the you know the vilifying of people of color or muslims it's it's being perpetuated by largely white people professing faith in Jesus. So there, I feel an irresponsibility in saying I just want to check out because having the option to check out means that I'm I'm still that we're still not where we should be. And um, so yeah, I, I balance those every day that that fatigue and being done with it with realizing yeah, but there are a lot of people who are living with urgency because they have to. And they don't get to be exempt from that when it gets too overwhelming. John, I want to I want to take it back really briefly to Twitter, but something I I think about this a lot and go back and forth. Clearly, you've kind of done the math, but you know, I I know you've used this language. A lot of people use this language. I've even used this language of you know, if you do X, you are a racist, or if you do Y, you're complicit in you know white supremacy, so on and so forth. And I know you've used this language obviously to be on the offensive to make sure it's clear. But do you, how much internally are you sometimes fearing that people are just checking out when you use that language and it's undermining this broader message of love? Yeah, it's definitely what, what you realize is you're, reach, you're trying to reach such a disparate group of people. So often I've, I've had to, or I've intentionally written the same piece 10 times because I'm trying to reach someone who is motivated by the story of another person. And someone else might be motivated by a theological argument and someone might be motivated by a, a really loving challenge. And so you're always trying to figure out how to reach maybe a different group of people. And so you are gonna say things in one way that are gonna um, sort of you know, alienate another group of people. 
the key that I, for me is trying to not assign motive to people, but I do want to say, here's the result of your vote. Here is the, the tangible collateral damage of what you support or who you support or how you voted. And then I give them the opportunity to be human in, in response. So calling someone racist is probably never going to be successful. But to say, I want you to see the effect of your vote on vulnerable people and then give them a chance to respond. And then that's sort of on them to either affirm or deny the, the best parts of them. John, why, why do you think the, the right or the, the more modern Republican Party why do they seem to have a monopoly on anti-abortion views, you know, even the movement against the Equal Rights Amendment led by Phyllis Schlafly? She was on the right. You know, I think that that was probably towards towards the sort of the end of the party realignment that brought more of the conservatives over to the Republican side. But even, you know, you mentioned um, white male violence, a lot of those followers, if you look at their political views, tend to lean more to the right. Why does the right have a monopoly on this stuff? And why are they the most fervent Christians at the same time? Like, what is going on on the right? I think it's it's the idea that there is there is an encroaching enemy. I think the, the white evangelicalism is built on that model of that there are a select group of people who are righteous and everyone else is a, a coming danger and that we need to fortify ourselves. And I, so I think that comes across in everything that's taught by the right politically and theologically. And, and that's why it's a movement against more voices. It's a movement against uh, more experiences. And when you realize that that's all based out of this irrational fear, um, I think that's why the right is what it is. It has no platform other than exclusion. You know, there has there's no heart there. There are no ideas there beyond expelling people and cutting them off. And um, you know, that's the sad thing that this is an an inherently professing to be Christian group. Right. It's their reading of Christianity. It's not necessarily because there there are Christians, there are evangelicals of of all religions. Even though the left is, I, I think, statistically less there there are fewer religious affiliations on the left the right tends to sort of their reading christianity is is defined by their exclusionary boundaries do you think that the left is is the left the contemporary left more progressive because they're more uh heterodox in terms of religious affiliation or even lack thereof exactly i think it's the desire to know other other traditions or to learn about other people's stories is inherently going to make you softer and more um, open. And I think when you have a theology that's based on damnation, um, that is always going to make you um, skeptical of other people. It's going to make you guarded and it's going to invoke your defense posture. And so I think it's, yeah, it's a chicken and egg thing. It's like, if you want to learn about other people, you're going to, and then as you do, you're going to lose your fear of the other. And I think that's what it's, it's the most um, disheartening thing is that's such a beautiful way to see the world. And yet I don't think the left has figured out how to package it or share it or perpetuate it in the way that the right has. The right has still got the best delivery system for their theology, for their politics. And we haven't quite figured it out because we are so spread out. I think that's that's the strength of what we do. And it's the liability, too. I think that's a good point to close it out. Um, John, thank you so much for joining us today. And if I haven't expressed enough, 
you're a huge inspiration to me. And I'm really grateful that Vote Common Good brought us together into each other's orbit. You keep doing what you do. I am the feeling is so mutual. I just greatly treasure who you are in this world. And thank you. Thank you all for the invitation today and for the, the really important work that you're doing. It's been great to be with you. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Yeah. I just saw this text. Who's bringing up Lil Nas X? I didn't even see this text <laughs> until right now. And G was like, not me. Not me. Oh, I haven't man. seen the video. I, I can't speak on it. <laughs> oh. Well, that was so. This is this this cool like after session. I thought this was good. he was just John was really good at just like I was trying to press on him on certain things, and he was he had great explanations that required some spin sometimes, but like you know not in a bad faith way, but like he's nah, sort nah. of taking it back to his stance of like nah, this is it's division and it's love, and we just don't know each other anymore, which I think you know could be a valid reading. There's such a difference between our guests who are professional speakers, though, and those right. who we want to riff with, because he does this for a living. He's got his mm. talking points, and I don't think it's in bad faith at all, but I'm just, he, he is down to a script. Yeah, so I, I just found that, yeah, it's very skilled. So I just found that uh, very interesting. Another reason why he inspires me in so many ways, like even on that tip, right? Like just understanding how to make sure your message is what you want it to be and not look back or hear, you know, listen to a podcast you've recorded and be like, why did I say that? Cause that happens to me all the time. Right. So, yeah. He does, know. he does this for a living. One of the things I, I was trying to, trying to like pin him down, like what, what is the division here? Is, is it religious in nature or is religious overlaid on top of it to, you know, better qualify it or whatever. But one of the things I wanted to get to was, this historian Randall Bomber, I was going to quote him, and he has this book about why the religious political movement moved from Jimmy Carter after his one term to Reagan in the 80s and how that process happened in the 70s and that it wasn't actually Roe v. Wade that mobilized that movement. It was actually school segregation. So I wanted to like go through those the different court cases and throughout the decades of the 70s and see if he agreed with that reading, um, that like historical chronology. But he probably would have just got out of it and been like, nah, listen, here, here's what we need to be talking about. So it probably would have been futile. Hey, you can have him back on and see. Yeah, I don't, I, I think it would have been futile, Ed. And also I found yeah. it interesting. I love shitting on white moderates. Uh, it, it's definitely a fun thing. I think this whole pod likes to do. But um, I think it's interesting when it comes to religion a little bit, because if you're kind of like, a moderate religious person that basically means you're like an Easter Christmas person, which means you're not really even religious to begin with. Like you're just like doing it culturally for your fam. So in this instance, I don't even really care about where that person stands as far as like their gumption on like what religion is doing. Yeah. To me, I think that was like a, a weird kind of scapegoat. It, it was kind of like the both sides kind of thing Right. where we know that this is very, prescriptive to the right and we know th why that is i mean <laughs> religion in many ways is absconding reason to believe in a higher power because you need to to go through the day and it makes you feel better and that that's fine but that also plays really well into a political party that offers no debate on where you need to stand 
for the left is let's have every possible, you know, viewpoint that goes in direct contradiction with modern religion. I wanted to get to more historical religion, but I think it just would have taken it way off course. Like I, you know, I wanted to talk about just further about how religion is used as a tool and how in antebellum America, pro-slavery literature, over half of it was, was written and, um, you know, disseminated by evangelical ministers. Like this, how like religion being used to buttress power and authority rather than religious itself being the problem, the way religion is used, that would have taken things off too court, uh, too, too far, I think. Gee, what'd you think of his responses to your Twitter questions? I don't know. It takes some time for me to process things most of the time. Right. It's hard, right? Because you're like, you're, you're still trying to remember remember all that said because while you're <laughs> interviewing somebody you're, you're thinking about like the time you're thinking about topics you can only sure. take so much in of what they're saying in real time that you gotta like sure. listen back to it and think about it and be like oh well this is what i actually think so you know uh, immediate reactions sometimes tough especially for me <laughs> i mean to me it's like it's like the it's like the common like twitter versus real life right you know real life john very like dogmatic like thinking it through and then Twitter John it's like at an 11 like you're racist you're this <laughs> you're that which to me it's all language that turns people off but like I I get where he's coming from where he look if he was speaking at Billy Graham he's been on the right for a long time he he's like a Joe Walsh like Lincoln Project type dude who's now like swung and is coming in and so I think he probably feels even stronger because this is his people he's been around that he has to go harder, uh, which is, I think, kind of what he was saying, which makes sense to me. Yeah, that that's I mean, he's walking a really tough line of like sanity and doing the right thing because that's tough what he's doing. Right. So it's hard for me to even mm, put myself in those shoes. Not everyone's built for that. You know, I don't. I have a Twitter account. I don't tweet. Same. You know, I, I might retweet if someone mentions me. But Twitter is like a realm that I have no interest in being in. So I know like everyone has their role to play. And if this is John's role, then this is John's role because it, it sure ain't mine. I also don't want to... I, I, I think we can't not say also that... It's a business too. Sure. That's why I was like, take the money out of it, take the family support out of it, because it, of course that plays a, a huge role. That's how he commands his speaking fees. I'm sure he's getting paid on on the way, and you, absolutely. You hit, when you're at certain numbers, you get to, you get paid more money, and, and and as you should be. And so that's also a fine line because he's got to feed the beast, right? Uh, in order to keep that going, right? Right. And that's what I brought up a uh, contamination at that level because. It is hard when someone's writing you checks and your lifestyle is supported by what you do as a public figure. And it's something that I navigate every day and work every day to not draw so much attachment to money and to security. And I know that sounds really irresponsible for me to even say on a public forum like this, but it's how I keep my spirit okay and whole. It's like to not hold these attachments and you know, so that I can say what I need to say without the fear of like, man, I'm not gonna get that check for sure. 
next season <laughs> because of what I just said, you know, but then we get into that whole conversation about capitalism always. It comes down to yeah. it. It comes down to it, you know. We got to get him and Slavey talking. <laughs> I'm not coming on for that one. I want to I want to just listen for that one. I mean, cuz I mean, he really is feeding into full like rage culture within like the language he's using. Yeah, and he even even said it like Twitter's, you know, is a platform that is argumentative. That's just sort of what's inherent to it so to participate in it you abide by certain a certain cadence of twitter no one retweets you unless you come in hot hot (laughs) right like it it, so it is kind of like rules of engagement it's rules of engagement exactly that's my my peaceful self ain't get ain't getting no retweets man i tried (laughs) (laughs) and no one feeling the peace and the calm oh man do you you think john (laughs) would have rocked with a little nas's x's video we didn't get to it he would have just said that he's never heard it. He's like, what? I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. He would have just uh, sidestepped that whole thing, I bet. He would have been like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'll watch it as soon as we're you off think? this pod or something. I feel like if you're a, a creature of Twitter, you, you can't not know it. I don't know. I feel like he would have uh, just the way uh, uh, Diane Morales sidestepped the uh, the Cuomo cartoon retweet. I feel like John would have sidestepped <laughs> Lil Nas X. I don't know. I can't, I can't comment. I just don't know. Like, I have no idea what you're speaking about. Word. All right, y'all, I think that's a wrap. I love it. All right, peace.